Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a really exciting founder. You know, we have a founder that, you know, actually is responsible for building a, a company that, uh, I mean, I've used many, many, many times. You know, I'm sure that many of you guys, you know, and gals, you know, have also used, you know, his previous company. But I find that, you know, his journey, you know, is remarkable, very inspiring. And I'm sure that you're all going to find you know, a, a lot of things that you could apply to your own journey from what you're going to be learning. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mike Evans. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So originally, you know, you grew up in Georgia, but uh, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up, Mike? I mean, life was good. You know, it was, uh, I grew up in Georgia. I was a single mom, uh, four kids, always wanted to, was always trying to do something entrepreneurial. I had a, you know, I had a lawn mowing business when I was 13. And, uh, and then eventually ended up going to MIT, uh, where I learned to write software, which I used to write that first version of Grubhub. And what, what got you into, the, into computers, Mike? Uh, I mean, video games, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> like, I, not, I think that's how a lot of people start with software. Uh, yeah, I played a lot of uh, Civilization and, uh, and other games when I was a kid. And uh, always wanted to write software, was interested in robotics. And so that's what I went to MIT to do. 
Uh, and then uh, I, I learned a little bit about what to code and how to code while I was there. Um, and then kind of knew I wanted to launch another business after that. But you did a little bit of the corporate, the corporate world. So, you know, at what point, you know, would you say the the idea of Grubhub, you know, comes to you? And what was, because as they say, you know, ideas, they take time to incubate. They're there. We don't even know that they're there. But eventually, you know, there's certain, you know, events that happen that push you over the edge. So so what was that process like for you? Yeah, so I was working at a company called Classified Ventures in 2002. And that's one of the early internet mainstays. It was one of the companies that, they were trying to make it possible to put classified um, ads online for cars and homes and things like that. Uh, and it was, a, it was a company owned by a bunch of newspapers. And so I was working there for about two years. It was super valuable to be in, in uh, I think of it as corporate America. It was, it was only 400 people at the company. It wasn't a huge company. And, uh, but I learned a lot about, um, I had a great manager. I learned a lot about how to manage. Uh, I learned a lot about how HR is typically in most organizations, HR is there to protect the company, not help employees. Uh, and a few other things, you know, that I wanted to take with me as I started something pretty quickly, uh, in that journey, pretty early on, I was like, I need to find something. I need to find some idea to go start a company because I don't really like working for other people. The idea of, uh, Grubhub, um, I, I, basically it was hard to order a pizza. Like you, you had to go on the yellow pages. They were listed alphabetically. You had to call on the phone, get put on hold. Um, I talked over that idea with a coworker of mine, Matt, uh, who ended up becoming my co-founder. And then I also talked about it with my boss and a couple other people. And, uh, and then I started it one night. I, I talk about this in Hangry, my memoir. Uh, you know, I was on the bus on the way home. It was, I was, didn't want to cook. It was like a, it was a nasty cold night. I was tired. I didn't want to cook. And so I wrote version one uh, after a long, nasty commute. And it was just a hobby. It was a hobby for like a year. Uh, it was a delivery guide where you could see the restaurants that deliver to you just in Chicago, just on the north side of Chicago, not even anywhere else. I would, I would call restaurants and get their information and upload their menus, uh, the, the actual a scan of their physical menus, not like type them in. Uh, and so it was a hobby and it started to get a little bit of traffic. And then, then uh, my business partner, Matt, he sold a restaurant on the idea of advertising. And then like a week later, I, I quit my job and went, went for it full time. It was a terrible decision, uh, but it worked out. Everybody around me agreed it was a terrible decision, but uh, I went for it. And then... Um, but it was two years, Mike. So why did it take two years? Why did it take two years? Yeah. Year and a half. It was like a year and a half. Um, video games. Again, <laughs> I was playing a lot of Xbox. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I mean, it was a hobby at first. I was 20, 24 years old and uh, not super motivated to do something. And then I just kept getting more and more frustrated with working at a company and more and more interested in, in the thing I had created. Uh, started to think I had legs. Um, and so, it, I, you know, I was, I was just working on weekends every once in a while. I'd get distracted by like music festivals or whatever and or hiking trips or whatever. And then at some point I was like, you know what? I should do this. Like this thing's got legs. I should do it. Um, and so then, then it was very quick. Then it went from that to full-time, no safety net. My, you know, we had 250 grand in debt between my wife and I, she didn't have a job coming out of law school and, um, and I went for it and, uh, and it worked like I, you know, that first few months, I, it was really hard to figure out how to do sales, but, um, but I got a selling for dummies book and started reading how to do sales and finally figured it out and started selling, signing up restaurants. and. You know, I, I was able to pay myself a salary pretty quickly in those first few months. And so then I ran the business for 
from 2004 full-time. I ran the business from 2004 to 2007 before we took our first financing. We got up to five employees and just about 600,000 in revenue before we took our first financing. So let's talk about two for the people that are listening to get it. What ended up being the business model of Grubhub? How, how were you guys making money? So it started as just a, a neighborhood delivery guide where people paid for advertising. So they'd show up at the top of a, of a listing. And that was a pain in the neck. Like it, it was really hard. So I, I got about 100 restaurants signed up on that model. And I realized I needed to sign up another 100 restaurants to double the revenue of the business. And, and it was hard. It was a slog going out there and getting restaurants. And so uh, my, my partner, Matt, had this idea that maybe we could charge on a per order basis. And so I ended up building writing the software similar. It's, I wrote software that's similar to what Twilio does now, which is uh, I wrote a, commu some commu a communication platform where people like a phone, a phone server where people could, uh, I could put a special phone number up for a restaurant. Customers could call in, I'd forward the call to the restaurant. Uh, and then I'd just do a transaction per order. It took about another year before I realized phone orders were the, not the way to go. Like I needed to do online orders. And so, um, and so I switched over to online orders and then the company really started growing at that point. And at what point do you do you realize, hey, I think that we're we're turning a corner here. I think that we're into something. Yeah, I mean, it was you know it was profitable from day one because I it was bootstrapped. So I ran it for from two thousand four to two thousand seven without any cash uh, in, in, and we were we were doubling. You know, by the time I got to two thousand seven, we had six hundred k in revenue, and it looked like we were going to double every year for a while. But we thought we could accelerate that with some financing, and so we took financing. Um, launched, uh, we launched four cities on our first financing. We took a million dollars and launched four cities, four additional cities, uh, in addition to Chicago. Then we took another $2 million in financing a year later, and we launched in 11 cities. And so we got into 14 cities on $3 million of financing, got back to profitability very quickly, and we're growing very fast. And, uh, at that point I was able to pay off my student loans, uh, that had, you know, that I had, that I quit the job to do. And I was like, oh, I think I overshot. Like this thing's going to be a lot bigger than just paying off my student loans. And it, it, even at that point, it started to become pretty clear that we were going to grow big enough to be able to have an IPO provided we could, there was a lot of competition, um, provided we could stay ahead of the competition. We were gonna find. And also in your case, I mean, as, as we're talking about, you know, especially that the financing side of things, when you went out there to get money, I guess the first question is, at what point do you realize, because, I mean, you're bootstrapping this, you know, you're making money. Why, in first place, take money? Uh, at what point, you know, does that become, you know, clear that that's the route to follow? And how is that shift, you know, that you had from just going, you know, to get money and then, you know, you ended up getting a strategic partner and you ended up, you know, like, wow, you know, I was thinking it in a different way and I'm glad it turned out the way it did. Yeah, the the thing that made me realize we needed to get financing that that first million dollars was we I tried to launch San Francisco, the market. You know, we started in Chicago and I tried to launch San Francisco, the San Francisco market with Grubhub. And it was a failure. I didn't have enough cash to to spend on advertising to start acquiring consumers who were actually using the traffic. And and I didn't need it the first time around because it was a hobby for a year and I built a lot of SEO value. So people were I got traffic on the website. For just by simmering the business for a year without any financing, but that wasn't going to work for expansion markets. And so I know I, I knew I needed a little bit of money. Now the fact that we were already profitable when I took money means I didn't need a lot of money. I just needed expansion capital. And uh, 
And so we were looking for cash and it took forever. It took over a year to find, we won, a, we won a, the University of Chicago's uh, business plan competition in 2006, two years after the business had been started. And even then with all those introductions, it took a year to close our first financing. And I had a mentor, Chuck Templeton, who was the founder of OpenTable. And he told me, you know, the, the thing that you want most out of, a, out of investor is not the cash. Uh, it's like the sixth most important thing because everybody's got cash. All investors have cash. They, they're not differentiated by the fact that they have cash. So what you want to look for is somebody who's strategic, somebody who, um, some combination of, of the following five things. They don't have to have all five, but they have to have a couple of them. They have to be really good strategic thinkers. They have to have some sort of domain expertise, whether that's technology or product or marketing or sales. They have to have connections so that they can make introductions to potential employees and partnerships. You have to have similar belief systems to them. Like you have to have share values. Uh, and so you talked about all these things. And at the time I was like, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> like, I just want the cash. <laughs> like, come on. But he was right. It actually turned out to be the case that the, the reason Grubhub was successful was we had a very thoughtful strategic board that helped point out our blind spots, uh, that point out my blind spots and tell me where I was wrong about things. And that was really valuable. It helped me make better decisions. It helped me grow and helped me learn. And I talk about this in the book that that Chuck challenged me. And he said, if you if you just you you've already got a profitable business, you could just grow this for the next ten years. You'll be rich. You'll be fine. You don't have to do anything else. But if you want to grow, if you want to stretch yourself, if you, like give, get a board of directors that you have to report to, and learn from them. And that sounded really appealing to me, even though I kind of just wanted the cash. Uh, and it turned out to be true. I, I, it turned out to be so true that the second time around when I, when I founded Fixer, my current business, which is a premium handy person service, um, I ended up taking financing, even though I could have just financed the whole business myself um, from the proceeds of the Grubhub IPO, because I wanted to have a strategic board that pointed out my blind spots again. And so, um, so that was the thing I learned the first time around is that you, you don't take money for the money. You take money for the expertise. Uh, and in fact, I even talk about this with one of my investors. I'm taking money from you so that you can work for me for free uh, because I have to pay everybody else for their advice. But once you put cash into my business, you have to give me your advice and I don't have to pay you for it. So um, so I, I'm, I'm going to make you work for free. And I and I do. I put my board to work. I I assign them jobs. I assign them tasks. They, they do. Thought, you know, they, I assign them mentorship um, responsibilities within my team sometimes. So I take that really seriously. And, uh, and I think some of my investors have been like, I didn't realize how hard he was going to make me work. So, so I guess, you know, that's an interesting point because, you know, there's a lot of people that are probably listening and, and wondering how they're going to be structuring their own board and what happens when, you know, they take money from some of those, say, you know, tier, you know, one, you know, funds and things like that. What are, what would you say are the, you know, maybe like three key ingredients of an effective board and the dynamics that need to go with it. So every person on the board should be good at something and they should, and each person should be good at something different from the other people on the board. I'm talking about the non-employee members of the board. So if you have somebody who was a consultant and then an investment banker and then an investor, stay away. Those are not good investors. Uh, you want somebody who ran a company who, who is good at something. Not everybody on the board has to be the way, but a number of people have to be good at marketing or sales or product or partnerships or something because it's, it's really easy to have a, a quote unquote expert opinion from a place of no experience. 
and um and I really appreciate it when when there's there's domain expertise at the board level. And it's really nice when people have different expertise because they bring a, a diversity of opinions. I you know, another thing that's really important is um values alignment. So we have core values at our company. We talk about them a lot. There we put them in the first page of every every PowerPoint presentation, every every meeting. We talk about them all the time. And I make sure that the investors agree with them. Now Every investor will say they agree with your core values. That's they just say yes. It's just like a check the box thing. But but you got to dive deeper than that and really ask tough questions about when they've made trade offs and when they've had to sacrifice values and things like that. Another question I always ask investors and and uh, is uh, how do you, how are you differentiated from your competition? And uh, investors, most of them like fifty two percent, like just barely most of them, really like it when you ask them that question. And then the other half gets offended. Like, how dare you ask me how I differentiate? But they're asking that question of you as a company, so they should be willing to answer it. If they can't take their own medicine, you don't want them on their board, your board. And so th- some of these tests are subtly testing for how arrogant uh, investors are and how, how quick they can think on their feet and how, um, how, val- like, how, how much they can learn. Um, and those are all really important characteristics of a board member. The same thing, questions they're asking you, you should be asking them. And if they say something like, well, we're really founder friendly and we're all operators, be aware that every firm says that, <laughs> every single one. So you have to test it. You have to like, you have to find out if it's actually true. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's Asynchronous, I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com is just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com 
forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, now one question here is prior to the IPO, uh, you guys had raised a bunch of money. So question here is how much money did you guys raise in total prior to the IPO? And what was that experience of going from one financing cycle to the next? And how did those expectations from investors also vary? Yeah, we did something a little bit unique that a lot of companies don't do. We we were profitable prior to every single financing. So we we take the money and then we grow so fast that we were profitable again. And so each time we had a lot of control over the conversations uh, because we didn't need the money. We could keep growing at a given rate, but we found opportunities to use the money to grow faster. And so we raised $1 million, then $2 million. Then the next fundraising we raised was from Benchmark, and that was $11 million. That enabled us to really expand from 14 markets to 50. Another thing that happened is right after we raised the, 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 the 11 million from Benchmark, we raised an additional $20 million of follow-on from a, a partner fund that they worked with sometimes. And, and by, I mean, just after, I mean like 10 days after we closed the $11 million fund, we, raised, we closed another $20 million in financing. We never used the money. Our bank account never dropped below $20 million because we kept, we kept getting to profitability really quickly. And so um, in some sense, it was unnecessary dilution. Um, but in some other sense, it was really nice to have the, um, the, 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 the safety net. Like if, if things go wrong, if, if we have a, at the time we didn't have a pandemic, but you know, we had the housing crisis, you know, we were able, we were going to be able to weather that storm. Now it turns out the housing crisis didn't hurt grow up. It actually accelerated the business because people stopped going out for food and they started ordering delivery food and marketing got very cheap. And so we were actually able to grow through the housing crisis. And then we raised another $50 million from, uh, to, to acquire a competitor. And so that money you know, came into the company and immediately went right back out to buy, the, to buy a competitor. We bought Campus Food. Um, and that got us into 350 markets. So in total, we raised $84 million over the course of uh, from 2007 to 2012. Um, but we, you know, we aside from the $50 million that we spent on on campus food, we really only ever spent 14, 14 of that million of that to grow the company, um, which is pretty capital efficient. I think a lot of companies raise a lot more money prior to an IPO. But and so our investors were pretty happy when we went through the IPO because we, there hadn't been a ton of dilution for, uh, for the early investors. Yeah, no kidding. Now, now at what point does the uh, merger of Seamless come about? Because I believe it was prior to the IPO. And how did that come about? And, and why did it make sense to go with that? We were in the process of going through the... I, I mentioned this in Hangry in the memoir. You know, we were, process, we were in the process of... Um, of getting ready for the IPO. So we went through the entire thing. We, you know, we did the bake-off, we bought, we, we hired an investment firm, we went through all the legal work, we um, went through the SEC comment period. We got all the way to the point where we were ready to file the S1. Now in 2012, you, you couldn't file the S1 digitally. You literally had to um, take, the, take this 300 page document and drop it off at the SEC in New York City. And so we had been in discussions with Seamless about a merger and because, because there was this challenge that we had. We were really big in the rest of the United States, but they were very big in Manhattan. And Manhattan is where all the investment bankers are. And so 
every all the investment bankers using Seamless instead of Grubhub was going to be a problem for the Grubhub IPO. But we were ready to do it anyway. And it really, all, it, we were negotiating with, with Seamless for several months, a couple months. Uh, and it came down to the day of our filing. We literally had a lawyer sitting in a car across from the SEC as we were working out the final details with Seamless for a merger, which by the way, you know, the concept of a BATNA, the best, great, uh, best uh, alternative to a negotiated agreement, getting ready to file, like being a couple minutes away from filing your IPO is a really good alternative to making a deal. And so we were able to get the terms that we wanted going into that merger. Um, and then we had to scrap the IPO and we, we spent a year, um, we spent a year doing the merger before going through the eventual IPO we did in 2014. And the first time around, I was, you know, I was the co-founder of the company. Uh, but the second time around, I knew I was going to actually be leaving after the company went public. So in 2012, I had planned on staying, but in 2014, that had changed. and I decided it was time for me to move on. And so the first time around, I was in the driver's seat. And the second, second time around, I was still an important player, but I was more of a like passenger than in the driver's seat. And it was really interesting seeing the experience from both perspectives and going through it twice uh, with, the, with, with the same investment banks, though. And, and what, was, what was going through your head when all of a sudden you're finding yourself ringing the bell, companies public, you know, and uh, all those years of work, you know, that effort, you know, what, what was going through your head? So we expected the price of the, sh of the stock to be like $12, maybe $14. And the opening trade was 46. Wow. And so I, what, what, oh shit, was what went through my head. Like, I cannot believe okay. how much more money I just made than I thought I was going to make. Like, it was, it was insane. <laughs> uh, and uh, I actually almost said it out loud, but um, Mike Saunders, who is the co-founder, who was the founder of Campus Food, was on, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange with me. And he like looks at me with these wide eyes and like puts a hand over his mouth because there's like three reporters with like, with the, with the, uh, their tape recorders like in my face. And I almost, I almost just lost my mind when I saw the price come up, uh, which wouldn't have been like good <laughs> PR for sure. Um, but like, yeah, yeah I mean, it good. was, it was, um, I mean, I said this in the book, it was like that moment in Mario brothers when you get the hundred coins and you get the extra life. I was like, this is like my life just changed. I can literally like go buy an Island. This is insane. I cannot believe what just happened. And then, you know, qu quickly after that, the next thought was, so what now? Like that kind of wealth has an obligation associated with it like, to make the world a better place. And so a couple of years later, that's when I founded Fixer, which is a, a B Corp and an impact oriented business. And, and I didn't buy an island. I'm instead trying to create an entry path into the trades in a gender inclusive way. So then let, let, let's talk about that. Uh, but before doing that, you know, when you leave Grubhub, you know, you actually took two years off. What did you do for two years? So the first three months, I uh, rode a bike. I, I rode a bike from Virginia to Oregon, just at 10 miles per hour, uh, saw the entire United States, went through the Rockies, um, made a bunch of friends. Uh, I camped along the way. I didn't even stay in hotels. I had like a, a tent on the back of my bike. It was a really strong contrast, like rolling into, uh, into a small town in the United States and getting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich from the church that's handing them out is a big difference from being on a private jet provided by an investment bank uh, with steak tartare and like shrimp cocktail. Like there's a, that is a strong <laughs> contrast. And uh, I think it was good right. for me. I think it kept me grounded in a way that um, it's hard to do after, after an, a, a life-changing event like I had. 
Um, I hope it did. And then, and then shortly after that, um, uh, my daughter was born. And so I spent two years at home uh, with her before starting the next business. Wow. Amazing. So then let's talk about Fixer. You know, why Fixer? I mean, obviously, uh, I'm sure that during those two years, you got plenty of ideas, you know, plenty of people that you met along the way, you know, plenty of problems that you saw that needed, you know, a solution. Why Fixer? And how was, you know, that process of, of bringing it to life? Yeah, I really wanted to start a business that was, so first of all, 36 is too young to retire. I was like, I actually had a doctor say to me, you don't, you don't have to get another job, but you'll die young. I was like, what doc? He's like, you're going to get depressed and feel useless and die young. Like you'll get, you'll become an alcoholic. Like you need to work because you have way too much energy. Uh, so go like, go start another business. Literally a doctor said that to me and I think he was right. Wow. Um, and so I was thinking about what I wanted to do next and I had built a big consumer brand, right? Like Grubhub, millions of people use Grubhub, right? And so I knew I wanted to do something similar. I wanted to build a big consumer brand where we're solving a problem for for individual customers, like not B2B, not AI, not big data, you know, not blockchain, none of those things. I wanted something where like I made a, I had a physical product of some kind, a product or a service of some kind that like customers in use in their homes. And as I was looking around, and the other thing that I really wanted is I wanted a business where the social impact, the positive social impact that we create and the competitive differentiator were the same thing. And so I settled on this idea of uh, a premium handy person service where we, where we train people from scratch to be full-time employees because the competitive differentiator is we have a supply of workers that nobody else has access to and they're super high quality. N nobody else has those workers. We trained them from scratch and they're our full-time employees. And the social benefit is we're creating an entry path into the trades uh, that's really easily accessible. And because we train people from scratch to be handy people. And so in an environment where it's harder and harder to find tradespeople, we have sufficient supply. And so customers love it in the home because we show up and we know what we're doing and we clean up after ourselves and we get things fixed and we'll do a two hour job. And you, and you didn't have to call us on the phone. Like you could literally just use our app to, to schedule us to show up, right? So it's a modern day consumer experience. And the employees love it because um, there's a lot of economic mobility. You know, you go from working at Target at $15 an hour to making $65,000, $70,000 a year by your second year as a handy person. And like, it's a high growth, uh, eventually will be a high, high margin business. It's very complex. So like everything I just described, the training program and the scheduling system and the dispatch system and hiring and consumer acquisition, all of that is a royal pain in the neck. And that's what I wanted. I wanted a hard, hard business so that as we got to scale and people tried to copycat us, it was just, they had a lot of work to do to catch up to where we were. Um, you know, obviously Grubhub has a lot of competition now. And part of the reason was um, there wasn't a ton of barriers to entry to getting into online ordering and delivery. And I wanted a business where there were bigger barriers to entry. So all of those things came together and I launched this business, raised financing, um, from some of the investors that I knew from, you know, uh, Grubhub and post Grubhub days when I was on a couple boards. Uh, and then we are off, we are off to the races, by the way, starting a business where you go into people's homes nice. to fix things two years before a pandemic starts, uh, is not great timing. <laughs> so, you know, in March of 2020, you know, our <laughs> revenue dropped by 85% because we, we do work in people's homes. Uh, and so navigating that has been a whole other thing. 
uh, over the last. It, now it's back to back to high growth again. But for a couple of years there, holy smokes, this business is a pain in the neck. Yeah, no kidding. Now, what is it like, for example, for a business like this one, you know, which is a impact oriented business? to raise money in a challenging macro, you know, economic environment like the one we have now? One of the, what I was worried about was that the fact that it's impact oriented, right? We, we care as much about our stakeholders as we do about our shareholders. We care about the workers that are working for us to the same degree we care about shareholders. And that's even in our corporate documents, which is a super weird corporate structure. Um, and I thought that that was going to be a huge barrier to um, raising financing. And at first, we, we, you know, we raised, um, I guess we raised around $14 million. It was not a problem. It was no big deal. But then uh, we, needed a, we needed a bridge loan to just make it to profitability, which is what we're doing right now. And so I was going to raise another, another chunk of cash. And it turns out that the impact orientation wasn't the problem. The problem is Silicon Valley is terrified of W-2 employees, like in, just terrified of full-time workers. Um, ev almost every single investor was like, well, why aren't you doing with this, with a gig economy? And I'm like, there aren't enough people to do the work. If we're going to invest in training people, we want to retain them. We don't want them to just go work for somebody else. And so a W2 employee structure is necessary in an environment where supply is shrinking. And, uh, they all, all of them agreed with me and they were like, good luck finding money from someone else. So um, it's been really, really challenging uh, to raise financing for this business model. Um, we did do it. We were able to make it happen. But um, man, I had a lot. As, as my friend Chuck says, I had, to, I had to kiss a lot of frogs before I found a prince. And, and, and why did you decide to choose the investors that you chose, you know, for this, you know, initiative now with Fixer? Because, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, you could have financed this by yourself. Uh, but uh, also, you know, as a super successfully exited founder, you could have gotten any investor that you wanted, you know, as well. So why did you go with the investors that you went with? Uh, I went with the ones who understood the vision of what I was trying to accomplish and cared about the social impact in addition to a financial return. And I think you're finding this more and more with investors who are successful they make a bunch of money and then they say, now what? And a lot of them in Silicon Valley have said, okay, well, I need to, I want to start investing in healthcare so that I can, can help change the healthcare outcomes in the United States, or I want to invest in businesses or nonprofits to do climate change. And so finding investors that care about, you know, access to the trades and the number of people who can get into the trades in the United States, it wasn't very hard to find people who were aligned with that concept and who liked the idea of a double bottom line business. There's a lot more interest in that than I would have thought. Um, I did encounter a couple of investors who, who think just basically called me naive, just said that like, uh, you, you know, that's cute and all, but uh, we're here to make money. And uh, we don't care about, we don't care about anything else. We don't care about the environment or future or climate change or anything like that. Um, and I actually really like that I made this point. I have this pointy opinion that you have to care because you don't want that person on you. don't want that misalignment on your board. And so um, I, I've appreciated the ones who have told me to go pound salt because um, because I wouldn't want them on the board anyway. And so that it, it's been a mutual selection process as I've gone through it. I love that. Now, you were talking about vision. So let's just, uh, you know, dig deep into that. You know, if you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world, let's say, five years later, where the vision is fully realized for Fixer. What does that world look like? 
we are trying to reboot trade education in the United States. And so we'll be at a point where we have 40,000 employees and 10,000 of them will graduate to go on to become electricians or plumbers or roofers or crane operators. And 10,000 new entry-level folks will come in the door and we'll train them and get them reps in people's homes doing work, high quality, quality controlled um, with mentorship. And uh, it'll just be a revolving door where we are increasing the number of people who are entering the trades. Uh, and as we do it, we're going to be doing, I mean, we've done 40,000 jobs in people's homes at this point. You know, we're going to be doing at that scale, we're going to be doing a million jobs a year in people's homes, fixing things, which is its own benefit because, you know, if you can get, if you can fix your HVAC system instead of, instead of replacing it, that's both good for you economically. And it's good for the environment to not just throw away things that can be repaired and get new stuff. And so, um, you know, ideally what we're doing is we're creating sort of an ecosystem of sustainability uh, and it's profitable. And the people involved, the shareholders involved are also um, getting financial return as we do it. I love it. Now, Mike, imagine I put you into a time machine. You know, you see now we're thinking about the future, you know, as we were talking about, you know, the vision now, let's talk about the past. Imagine I was able to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time where, you know, perhaps, you know, it's that moment where you were at Classified Ventures, you know, figuring out, you know, what would be that next thing or, or that company that you would build. Imagine if you were able to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self and you were able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say to my younger self to think about the impact that your business has in the communities that it operates earlier. Don't, don't wait until you achieve the goal of paying off your student loans before, you know, I, and I mentioned this in the book that I go through this process of adopting a new goal, which is to level the playing field for independent restaurants versus big chains. If I had started with that vision, uh, the company Grubhub would have been both A, more successful and B, more resistant to competition after it went through the IPO. And, uh, and it, would have, it would have made the world a, a, an incrementally better place than it did during my time there. And so I would just say that to my younger self is think, and I'll say that to other, other people who are thinking about starting businesses, is think about businesses have huge impacts on the environments around them. They're huge levers for social change, whether or not you want them to be. So be intentional about what that change is going to be. Be thoughtful about it early in the process. That's amazing, Mike. Thank you so much for sharing that. Very profound. So for the people that are listening, you know, that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you can check out my website, mikeevans.com. Uh, and there's links on there to buy Hangry, the, the memoir I wrote where I talk about just the personal. It's really about the personal and emotional journey of um, starting something from scratch and seeing it go all the way through the IPO. Uh, there's ups and downs in it. And I think it's a pretty fun read. Um, and so you can find the links to buy the book on there as well, or get in contact with me at mikeevans.com. Amazing. Well, hey, Mike, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been a, an honor to have you with us, really. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.